the marketplace holds the way it is right now, we think that the American taxpayer will be fully repaid. Again, that's very conditioned upon the assumption that the world economy and the world financial markets stay where they are or improve, as opposed to deteriorate. I'm Fana Jaffe-Walt in New York. And I'm David Kestenbaum, also in New York. It is Wednesday, May 13th. That was AIG Chairman and CEO Edward Liddy, you heard at the top of the podcast. He was testifying today before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Today, we are bringing you the story of one of the biggest financial cons of the century. That you've never heard of, and also how to manage those greedy, testy teenagers. Otherwise known as financial conglomerates. Today, our Planet Money indicator, David, it is 28. 28 people. Put down your lunch, friends. 28 people in need of treatment for vomiting and nausea at a San Jose AT&T office. Ugh. Okay, here's what happened. In this office, there was one brave employee who decided she wanted to clean out the office fridge. There was food in there, and it had been in there way too long. I don't know, hard times. We're thinking maybe people were bringing their lunches into work more often. But the cleanup operation, it smelled so bad that it made 28 people sick. So we thought about whether this was what economists call a free rider problem. We thought about whether maybe it was a tragedy of the commons. But we decided it was just laziness. Yeah. Okay, so Hannah, today our whole show is about forgetting. Right. David, remember how everything fell apart last fall? You haven't forgotten that? No, yeah, I remember pretty clearly. Okay, so now it seems like here we are, we're standing nine months later looking back and we're just saying what happened, financial institutions, they pushed too hard and took too much risk. We get that that happened. Um, that's the thing that we all know that financial institutions do. They're it's, like, a, it's a given. Right. They're like teenagers pushing boundaries, and no one's surprised that that happens. Um, and we know that behavior so well that we have an enormous structure in place to contain all those hormones. Yeah, that's why we have parents. Right. Or in this case, regulators. And it's easy to stand here today and look back and say, man, those regulators must have really screwed up. They were asleep on the job. They were too soft or too cushy with the industry. I don't know, something. But I've been talking with all these regulation experts lately, and they keep saying regulators, they were doing a great job. A great job? Really? A great job? Yeah. Here's this guy. His name is Mike Roster, he's a bank regulatory lawyer. He's been that for 35 years. He's retired now. And he says, yes, regulators, great job. If you ever see a bank exam report, uh, they are brutal. There's no doubt about it, at least in the United States. And in speeches I used to give, I used to say that never is heard an encouraging word. If you were to read most exam reports, you would think a given bank is in dire trouble. That's because, yes, the regulators are tough and they do use tough language. Ruster says it's like this. You've got these huge conglomerates, AIG or Citi, and they're so huge. They do so many different things. Like a little banking here, a little insurance. AIG had an airplane leasing business. Right. So they have tons of regulators, and they each take on one small part. And they're super smart about car insurance or retail banking, and they hone in on that one area, and they do a really great job. So does Roster say that's what the problem was, that everyone was too narrowly focused on one little area? Well, no. And Roster says, you know, we thought of that problem. We knew that financial institutions sometimes behave like greedy teenagers. And so we put in place something called a consolidated regulator. A consolidated regulator? Right. So this idea came out of Europe, and here's how it works. We have these huge companies like Merrill Lynch or Citigroup. They have big operations in Europe. 
And Europe says to us, okay, you can set up your banks and insurance companies here, and we will regulate them in our countries. And Europe says to us, okay, you can set up your banks and insurance companies here. We'll regulate what happens in them in our countries, but we're not going to talk to your 300 U.S. regulators. You've got to give us one. Give us one regulator to be the consolidated regulator. And then that consolidated regulator looks over the whole thing, the whole Merrill Lynch or the whole Citigroup, AIG, whatever. That always sounds great, you know, look over the whole thing. What does it actually mean? What did they actually do? Well, they have meetings. They have big meetings. They make sure everyone's talking to each other and comes to these meetings and shares information, which sounds great. But Roster told me this is where things kind of start to break down. What happened is they held a lot of coordinating meetings. In coordinating meetings, you show slides to each other and you tell each other everything's okay. And it's usually not very polite to say, are you really sure it's okay? We, we all maintain a level of civility. So the the person who says, well, that's a nice presentation, but why don't you tell me what you didn't tell us today? Why don't you tell me what really worries you? Very seldom do people do that. And, and the primary question is, have you been looking at this and at that, and what does your examination report show? Look at the financials we've given you and, and ask a few questions and then have lunch, and that will be a nice day. It's so weird because it, it it's just like the, here are these people whose job it is is to be a hard ass when they go into institutions and do examinations. But then when they meet with all their examiner buddies, they're trying to be friendly. Well, first of all, remember, every na- we're dealing with nations here. So that means when you get into a room or you're reading a report and you're on a conference call, uh, if you get a little too belligerent with another nation, they're going to react that you are criticizing my nation. You're saying we in Italy aren't very good at what we do. So to recap, Roster says, these regulators individually, they're very tough on their exams in their specific area. Never is heard an encouraging word. But once they get in a room with their colleagues and PowerPoints and graphs and they're supposed to regulate each other, it's more like... Look at the financials we've given you and and ask a few questions and then have lunch and that will be a nice day. Because it's a delicate thing, these international meetings. It was hard to even set up the idea of a consolidated regulator in the first place. Everyone had big reservations. There was a lot of drama. I mean, if Italy says to China, we don't like your capital requirements, that's a really loaded statement. So, Hannah, I understand that politeness is a problem, but it wasn't a large part of this crisis that there was no one looking at systemic risk? Like, the problem wasn't that there wasn't someone looking at all of AIG. The problem was that no one's looking at at how AIG depended on Lehman Brothers and how how all these big institutions depended on each other. Right. Well, and he says they're both problems. And he really likes the idea of a U.S. entity whose entire job would be to look over the whole picture, not just one company, but look at how they're all interconnected. Um, But he says whoever that you know, systemic risk regulator is. They must, must, must learn how not to be nice. I think you, we will probably see an agency or a, a body whose sole job will be to come in and, and not be polite and ask very tough questions and look at a, co- a complicated company like AIG and say, all right, where in the world might there be risk? Don't, don't get stuck with the nitty gritty about the credit card issues or the insurance coverage. Where are the big trillion-dollar issues? We know everyone else is doing it. We know you've got all these hedges in place. We know you've done all these other things. What if it doesn't work? Now, that will be a very tough set of questions to ask. They're going to be up against really bright people at these companies. So you're going to have to find really good people. I can imagine 
a year from now, five years from now, when we still have this crisis very fresh in our memory, somebody being incredibly skeptical and asking tough questions. But if it's a matter of that person having the right attitude, things are going well the next 20 years, how are they going to hold on to that that skeptical attitude? You're right. We've just come out of 10 to 20 years of huge prosperity. And so everyone was lulled into thinking it will continue. Uh, when I was in my law firm, I used to say, I don't trust any of my lawyers unless you've been through one downturn, preferably two, because it's only then you realize it always will go up and down. Hopefully, there are enough CEOs and CFOs and boards of directors who, having been burned this time around, are going to say, I'm not going to accept conventional wisdom. I don't care that everybody else is doing it. You need to prove to me this really is safe and sound. But then there's going to be another generation of of CFOs who have not been burned. Yeah, that's one of our problems. Correct. Correct. I, and I don't know how to solve that one. <laughs> if I can extend everyone's life uh, to 150 years, maybe they'll be around long enough. Hey, Hannah, I have, I have a plan. What's your plan? The plan is the people we pick to be our regulators, we require they be 150 years old. <laughs> Right. So they'll remember how bad things got this time around, and they will never be polite. They will never forget. They will never, ever forget. Never, ever, ever. They'll forget. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, guys. This has happened before, you know, and we've already forgotten about it. Haven't you ever heard of Ivar Kruger, the match king? So he was the father of many of the complex financial instruments that caused this crisis. He invented many of the early transactions, off-balance sheet, assets and liabilities, the use of offshore special purpose entities. That's Frank Partnoy. He wrote this book, The Match King, Ivar Kruger, the financial genius behind a century of Wall Street scandals. So Partnoy, of course, he's a former investment banker. You may have heard of him. He wrote uh, two books, Fiasco and another one called Infectious Greed. Yeah. And unlike some of the books we have here in Planet Money headquarters, This one's about real people, real characters. It's this great story about aspiration and deceit and the mania that can come with investing. You mean you didn't like uh, the book that I actually was reading and put me to sleep last night called The Analysis of Structured Securities? (laughs) Mm. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. Right here I have Measuring and Managing Credit Risk, semicolon, Quantitative Approaches for Default Risk. No, those are great books, guys. But the thing about this book is that this guy, Ivar Kruger, is so fascinating. He got really rich by creating a match monopoly in Sweden. Matches? You mean like little packs of matches used to light cigarettes? Yeah, exactly. He made a ton of money doing that. But the thing is, he really wanted to make it big in America. He was obsessed with big powerhouse families like the Morgans and the DuPonts. And he came up with this idea that investors in the U.S. could lend money to struggling European governments. And in exchange, those governments would give him a match monopoly. Great idea, right? Yeah. But he needed American investors. So he decided to create a buzz on the ship he sailed over on to America. He did this really clever thing. He paid the wireless operator on the boat he sailed to America on to say that he had engaged the wireless lines for his exclusive use so no one else could use them. Most of what he was doing for 24 hours was just sitting there trying to look like he was sending lots of cables. And he had a briefcase with papers flying all over the place, and he's tapping away, tap, 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 um, and people stop by. So the first passenger comes by and says, I'm going to send a cable to my family and tell them how beautiful the boat is. And I'm sorry, but Mr. Ivar Kruger has engaged the wires for his exclusive use. And pretty soon, word spreads around the ship. And by the time he got to New York, 
the media was going crazy over him, and they were ready to write these stories, and he was front-page news the next day. So his brilliant plan, it worked. By the time he got to America, people were desperate to give him their money. And he came up with a lot of, shall we say, creative ways to have people invest. These complex financial devices, things like B-shares, where you could invest but you couldn't vote, and gold debentures, which is just a fancy word for a bond. The other thing is, he was a smart marketer. Some say he was the one who pushed the idea that three on a match was bad luck. What's three on a match? Well, uh, back then, you could maybe use, you know, one match to light three cigarettes, and people would do that. But Ivar realized that if he could keep them from using one match for three cigarettes and have them use more than one, he'd sell more matches. It was sort of this bad luck rumor thing that got started in World War I, and he really pushed it. So he told his advertisers to tell stories about a bride who'd been left at the altar, a soldier who was shot by a sniper, just to convince people to use more matches. So, so that just sounds like a very shrewd marketer. Where's the fraud actually come in? Well, he did have a Bernie Madoff side to him. He did get a match monopoly in Poland and France, and things were going well. But then he made a deal to loan money to Germany, and right before he signed it, the market crashed in October 1929. So did he did he end up signing it? Yeah, he did. Why? Well, he was really desperate to compete with these big American powerhouses, the Morgans. And the Morgans had usually been the ones to loan money to foreign governments. So he was just desperate to do it. But the thing is, once he signed the deal, he was stuck. The market wasn't going to turn around, and he tried to make other deals. And then eventually he ended up forging Italian treasury bills. Uh-oh. Yeah. Thing is, he knew at one point that he was going down and that he was going to get caught. And then his bankers realized that it was all a fraud. So th this really is, is kind of exactly what's going on today. There's like a big party going on, people get caught up in it, and then it all comes crashing down. Exactly. Here's how Partnoy tells it. We should have slowly realized that we were becoming idiots, right? That's what we should be. We should, oh, I'm sort of becoming an idiot now. I shouldn't be buying all these stocks. But it doesn't work that way. We, we build up trust in people. And we don't pay attention for a while, and mania grips us, and then we suddenly realize that we've all been idiots. Um, and that's what Ivar's bankers realized. And his bankers had been letting him go, basically. Donald Durant, his main contact at Lee Higginson, which was this venerable Boston bank with these great connections, James Storrow of Storrow Drive and the Higginsons who started the Boston Symphony, they were these these grand people, and they went under because because of Ivar, because they didn't over time think they'd been idiots. They didn't monitor. They didn't go to they board meetings. They just collected meetings. their they checks just, and didn't they, ask questions. They just, they just collected their checks, and they were handsome checks. And this applies to our current crisis, too. Whether you're talking about a Ponzi scheme or a housing bubble, a lot of what our economy is based on is just faith. You trust that things are worth what people tell you they're worth, and when they're not worth that, you're in trouble. There's a line in this book that in finance, there's no such thing as reality. I asked Frank Partnoy what he meant by that. We're not just pricing um, a $100 bill. We're pricing a $100 bill that it looks like someone put into an envelope. And you're looking at the envelope and trying to see through it to see if there's really a $100 bill in there, but you can't tell. And so until you actually open the envelope, you're living in a little bit of a dream world. At the end, when you open the envelope... 
you hope there's a $100 bill in there, and then it'll actually be the real world, and it'll be worth $100. But often in complex markets, you don't actually see the end. You don't see that happening. If you buy stock in General Electric, you see you see a process. You see a bunch of complicated activities over time, and you never see what's in the envelope. And so I think of it as having some element of faith, and I think Ivar did too. I think that's one of the reasons he was able to raise so much money and be so successful is that he um, sought out that part of our brains, um, that part of our our nature that just wants to believe and trust that people will have our best interests at heart and that they'll make money for us. Wait, so Caitlin, what happened to Ivar Kruger? Well, his story came to a very tragic end, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. If you want to know exactly what happened, you'll have to read the book. All right. Thanks, Caitlin. I think that does it for us here today on Planet Money. Check us out on the blog, npr.org slash money. We've posted the full interview we did with Elizabeth Warren. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Yeah.